Today, let's ask the question, what does the Bible say about sexual abuse? Today, I'm flying solo again, and I am looking at the Bible and what it says about sexual abuse. So if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you might know some of the passages in the law, uh, specifically in Deuteronomy, and we'll look a lot in Deuteronomy chapter 22, and it might seem really intimidating and really upsetting or even cruel, especially in our modern understanding of these laws. And I want to tackle these head on and look directly at them and dissect them and take them apart and see what do these actually mean? What do we need to understand with the proper lens of history and culture and anthropology and also other surrounding cultures, all of that. And then also look at a lot of topics throughout the Old Testament. When we look at the Psalms and the Proverbs, the prophetic books, this idea of caring for the oppressed and the hurting and the vulnerable. And then through the New Testament, what does that look like? Sexual immorality and sexual morality and how sexual abuse fits into those things. So we're going to jump in. Um, again, I know that this seems kind of upsetting. And some people think if I start looking at this, I'm going to find out that God is like this cruel, evil monster. And I just don't want to get into it. I would rather pretend I can just trust and believe that he's good and I don't have to get into this. But these things don't just, it's not something we have to say, okay, I believe you, you're good, I don't, I need to see it, or even say, wow, this seems super mean, but I guess you're good. It actually just proves over and over the goodness of God, the holiness of God, his kindness towards people, his mercy, his love for the vulnerable and oppressed, and specifically his not just love, but elevation to equality of women and girls in this ancient society. Um, not ancient society, but ancient world, where women were seen as objects, as disposable, as uh, sexual items to be used by men. And that's not what the God of Israel says, and not what his law says. And we see him uphold this value of life throughout his laws. So if you haven't previously listened to the episodes that we've done on Ask the Question about, let's see, we started with marriage. Um, what is the biblical model for marriage? We looked at What's the role of prostitution in the Bible? Also polygamy. So if you haven't listened yet, go back and listen to those because a lot of the things that I'm going to kind of skip past today, we covered in those. We went pretty deep on a lot of those topics, as deep as we can in an hour. But my friend Andalina and Savannah and Christine and I talked quite a bit extensively at these ideas of elevating women as equality at uh, the creation of man and woman in Genesis 2, and specifically how sex is the union of two equals. It was not good for a man to be on his own. He needed a partner. Together they become one flesh. That's really important to lay that foundation down because then we see how sex is being misused and abused in these situations. So go look at those, uh, especially episode number 11 with Christine and episode number 8 with Savannah. That's really helpful as we jump into the law because the law <laughs> is just a lot sometimes. It's interesting because I really want to pursue a degree in theology, and I've been studying hard and looking at a lot of different avenues to pursue the specific degree that I want, and a lot of people, especially if they decide they want to be a theologian or a scholar in the New Testament or Old Testament, uh, naturally, a lot of people kind of are inclined to study the New Testament, and I definitely was inclined to do that as well because it just seemed like yeah, I get that God's the same Old Testament, New Testament, but this just seems like so much easier. Jesus is so chill and cool. And of course, there's a thousand debates about the words of Jesus, but it just seems so much more like cut and dry where this seemed so mysterious to me. 
And even in the context of the Real Truth Ministries, the organization that I run um, for sexual abuse care and trainings on that and different things that we do to proactively train people how to fight sexual abuse and assault from both ends of uh, both sides proactively and also caring for survivors. And in writing that curriculum, I was really scared to look at the Old Testament, just even look at the verses about rape and sexual abuse because I just didn't understand them. And I also didn't really take the time to understand them well. So I referenced them, but not too much. And I was just like, oh my gosh, no one asked questions about this because it seems so scary. But the more that that has actually led me to dig into these verses, the more that I have fallen in love with the law, which I know sounds bizarre. And it's also making me want to move my area of study and hopefully attain a degree one day in Old Testament theology and Old Testament uh, different scholarly topics there because the law is actually <laughs> this really wonderful and beautiful thing when we understand it in its proper context. And it's so funny sometimes when you hear one of the psalmists say, I, I love the law, I meditate on the law, your law brings me life. And it's crazy because we think about our modern context of law. And we can appreciate a lot of things about American law and even constitutional law and how that all fits together. There's so many great things that we can say, wow, this is a pretty good system. Obviously fails a lot of people, let's not neglect that. But we can appreciate it for what it is and how it tries to treat everyone as equals, how it tries to give equal opportunity for people. We know that doesn't always happen, but um, even like the statue of, um, you know, it's a statue of a blindfolded woman and she's holding different scales because justice is supposed to be blind. And so we can appreciate that with all of its flaws and all of like the major issues. How much more can we appreciate this law that God has given, he, he previously gave to the people of Israel through Moses and to the specific people in a specific place in time and how that fit into their culture, the surrounding cultures, so many things. Hopefully I don't repeat too much from our previous conversations because a lot of these ideas are the same, uh, just valuing people and how we see that over and over through scripture. But it's so important to understand. And again, helps us not just see like God is the same from Genesis to Revelation, but I think the law helps us build this understanding that God is holy and therefore trustworthy. And we can trust him and what he says in the rest of the Bible and in the New Testament. And we can trust Jesus because we understand and trust God. Okay, so <laughs> let's do it. Deuteronomy 22. We're going for it. Diving deep. Put on your snorkel mask. Here we go. I have mentioned before Dr. Sandy Richter. If you want to just get straight from the source, from the person who has written so many amazing resources and articles and taught so many classes and lectures and is like the true VIP in this specific field of theology and um, scholarly, this area of the Bible, go read her book, uh, The Epic of Eden. You can listen to her podcast with Preston Sprinkle on this topic. She did also a lecture at his conference, the Theology in the Rock Conference this year in 2022 on this topic. So she has so much knowledge and just like a vast library of resources to understand this more. So if you want to just stop it here and go listen to her, I recommend that also. I'm going to kind of summarize a lot of ideas that I've learned from her. Also some other people as well. I'm just and just trying to study this deeply, but she is the fountain of resources for this. So I'm going to repeat probably a lot of what you'll hear because I learned it from her. So we're going to look at verse 22 first. 
If a man is discovered having sexual relations with another man's wife, both the man who had sex with the woman and the woman must die. You must purge evil from Israel. Important to note, this is a consensual relationship. Adultery is happening here. So this is a married woman having sex with, it, it seems like probably a single man, not a married man, not a betrothed man. We're not really sure, but that's what it appears to be. And they both have engaged in this relationship knowingly, consensually. There's no detection of force here. The word in Hebrew here uh, that they had sex, it means to lie with, very consensual. If you look at the verses prior to this, you can see it's in the betrothal stage of marriage. And so it's like if a woman is engaged to a man and he finds out that she didn't honor their commitment or she didn't honor what she told him and she's not a virgin, but she told him he was, here's what to do. And also here's what to do if he accuses her of not being a virgin, but she really is, then here are the consequences for him. This is very countercultural to the other cultures existing. So like if you look at Babylonian law, uh, similar to this time period, actually prior to this time period, and Assyrian law, then you're going to see a society where the honor of men really lied a lot in women's sexuality. And unfortunately, I think, I mean, we have a completely different culture and society that are built on different foundations, but sometimes these ideas are still in place. And that is not what the God of Israel is telling his people through this law. Women have their own autonomy. And although honor and shame are part of a lot of ancient Middle Eastern cultures and Middle Eastern cultures today, God is really explaining guilt and innocence here, which is important. And it's not that one is better than the other. It's just that we need to make a difference here. And also that when someone dishonors a woman, he's dishonoring that woman, not just her father, not just her brothers or her husband. It's the woman as well. This is important, verse 22, as well, because in our modern context, we look at adultery or fornication, like sex outside of marriage. We see those things as, well, you know, people can do whatever they want. They're adults. And so whatever happens in your bedroom happens in your own bedroom. We don't need to know the details, but it's unfortunate that you need those choices. Or we say, yeah, go you, because you're in charge of your own sexuality. Woohoo! We know today that those decisions have consequences, not just spiritually, not just emotionally, not just sometimes physically, but on other people as well. If you're married, that would have uh, severe consequences on your partner. But also, we can see like in the verses before, what it would have if you were in this process of marriage, you were betrothed, you made this commitment to be married and you're not finished with the process yet. Um, how that would affect your family. This would really affect a society where the whole culture is built around families, around this society where there's tribal unity, there's patriarchal unity. So everyone is caring for each other's best interests, especially the males in the household. It's not just for their own honor, but to honor those in their family. And so it, it's a lot of family being each other's network and each other's support, providing the opportunities for one another. So this would have consequences on those around you. And you really have to think about how that would impact those around you. And again, like not the same as today, but we can still see how that would affect people around us today if we made poor choices like this. The next verse is verse 23. So it starts out saying, if there is a young woman who is a virgin engaged to a man and another man encounters her in the city and sleeps with her, the two of them uh, I'm sorry, take the two of them out to the city, out to the gate of that city, Woo, let's start over, and stone them to death. The young woman, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he has violated his neighbor's fiance, you must purge the evil from you. So 
again, we need to look at the Hebrew here. So I recommend if you don't go to Sandy Richter or another scholar who uh, is really familiar with the laws here, go to a teacher who is fluent in ancient Hebrew and who can explain this and explain the etymology here and what's happening and a lot of the semantics that go with this because it's very important to understand ancient Hebrew and not just like take a word and say, oh, well, this is what that means. And so she explains that the word here, not even gonna try to pronounce it in Hebrew yet. Uh, it means to lie with, again, it's consensual. So this is actually another instance of adultery. Sometimes our modern translations don't do a great job of translating these specific words. And so it kind of changes the whole context if we don't understand the original Hebrew. There are a lot of great Hebrew scholars that we can look at. And um, hopefully if you know one, then it would be great to sit down with them and ask them about this passage. So we've talked about this in the marriage podcast. We talked about this, I think even in uh, the podcast about prostitution. Marriage in ancient Israel happened in these stages. So being engaged wasn't like you're fully married, but it's not like our engagement today where you can break it off and you're not breaking this commitment. It's like, yes, we're going to get married, but we haven't said I do yet. It was kind of like saying I do in some ways already. The commitment to be married had already been made and the process just was not completed yet. So a sexual encounter was a part of that. Um, there was a lot of familial things that needed to happen as well. So this would be violating that commitment. And also we see that she's in a city. So there's some really specific details included here. And we're going to see in the next verses in 25 and 26, that we see a woman who's out in the country. The significance of that is if you're in a city and someone is harming you, uh, especially in an ancient city where it's not like skyscrapers and giant streets and buildings, you can look at pictures of like ancient Israel or even see like ruins today. Uh, the structures that were made out of like stone or mud or straw, even sometimes um, but like mud brick. It wasn't like New York City. It was like a lot of people were up in each other's businesses and also people living with each other. You wouldn't have a lot of alone time probably within a city and you would hear a lot of things. And so if someone needed help, they could cry out for help. And it would also be the responsibility of your neighbors and your family who are probably very close around you to help you. So she didn't need help because this was a consensual relationship. She didn't cry out because she didn't need help. And so these two people engaged willingly in this relationship and she's violated this commitment to her fiance. And now they've engaged in basically what is an adulterous relationship. So counter to that, we're gonna look at number 25 and 26 in chapter 22. These are super significant and very helpful to understand. A lot of detail included here. Verse 25 starts out saying, but if the man encounters an engaged woman in the open country, and he seizes her and rapes her, only the man who raped her must die. Do nothing to the young woman uh, because she is not guilty of an offense deserving death. This case is just like the one in which a man attacks his neighbor and murders him. When he found her in the field, the engaged woman cried out, but there was no one there to rescue her. So significant and so important. So the only person responsible here and the writer, uh, the the law is very specific, this law is from God. It's very specific to say, it's not just I'm giving law here, I'm gonna explain why I'm gonna give an analogy and explain further. The only person responsible for this rape for sexual abuse, it's the rapist and or sexual abuser. It is their decision to assert power over another person. Even in our modern context, we have this hard time 
figuring out sometimes or just looking at a situation and understanding that rape and sexual abuse are not really crimes about sex or about seduction or about sexual desire. They're about power and using your power over another person, taking their power away, dominating them in, in these ways where you are just humiliating them and abusing them and manipulating them in ways that God did not intend and does not ordain and does not approve of and directly condemns in these passages. So that the, the author, uh, God specifically in this law is very careful to explain that and give a lot of details on it. it and also we see, She's in the country. There was no one there to help her. She was on her own. No one was around. It's the man's fault for abusing and violating her. And he took advantage of her in this place where there was no one around to help her. Uh, so in this passage, we see that the word here used is like he forcefully took her. It's the same as in 2 Samuel 13 and also Judges 19. So when we're talking about the rape of the concubine and the rape of Tamar, forceful, it was very intentional to harm another person. Um, there was like a lot of coercion involved, especially with Tamar. It just evil and vile acts being done. And so it's good for us to make specific, uh, to just really, really take these passages carefully step by step and see the differences between them because these are not all the same. And sometimes our translations don't explain that well to us, but we need to really take time to work through this and comb through this and understand the words. So again, if you have someone like resource around you where you can look at the ancient Hebrew to dig into this more and the etymology of these words, please do because it will be so helpful to understanding this more. So now we're gonna look at verse 28. So this is, if a man encounters a young woman, a virgin who is not engaged, he takes a hold of her and rapes her, and they are discovered. The man who is raped, who has raped her, is to give the young woman's father 50 silver shekels, and she will become his wife because he violated her. He cannot divorce her as long as he lives. So Dr. Sandy Richter makes a point in a lot of her discussions to say that she believes, and a lot of scholars will agree with her, the word used here is translated into force, and so a lot of our modern translations just take that and they try to summarize it for us and say well this we'll just summarize it as rape instead of like a forceful sexual encounter but it would probably be better translated as seduced or even kind of confused maybe coerced in some way so uh, it, this could be an instance where it's an older man who's trying to like coerce or seduce a younger woman into a sexual act there's a parallel passage actually in exodus and i think that this is translated better and helps us understand this more fully. So uh, we're going to look here. So this is Exodus chapter 22. And the specific portion of this, it starts in verse 16 and it goes to verse 17. This is kind of about social responsibility. So this chapter in Exodus, uh, these specific verses say, if a man seduces a virgin who is not pledged to be married, sounds familiar, and sleeps with her, he must pay the bride price and she shall be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he must still pay the bride price for virgins. So again, hard to understand. We need to pay attention to the language being used here, the original Hebrew, how it's used in other contexts, um, how some of these words are used, not even just uh, maybe the mistranslation of the sexual encounter, but some of the other words used. And then also like violated, um, some translations say that in some, some kind of way, violate or violated her. 
And then also look at this kind of sister passage as well, because it's going to open our minds and explain this better in a more full context. So this payment isn't really a dowry. It would probably be kind of like uh, making an investment in this woman's future. And also whether or not he marries her, as we see in Exodus 22, he still has to pay it. And in this society, a woman who was not a virgin, for most people would not be eligible to be a wife. And so there's kind of this insurance for her that even though you have been kind of seduced maybe by this older man, maybe by this craftier man, he has purposely kind of like made some kind of confusion or coercion here to get you to sleep with him. You've made this mistake, unfortunately. And now instead of you just being left on your own, you don't have, uh, nobody's going to marry you because of this decision that you've made. Whether or not that's right or wrong, the Bible does not comment on that. That's just a societal norm. The Bible's saying, no, no, we're not saying you're not going to marry this woman because she's dirty or unclean. That's a very common purity culture message that we hear. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says you're going to secure this woman's future. You're not going to sleep with her and have a one-night stand and then bounce. You're going to secure her future because marriage is about kind of like your career, especially as a woman, as a man as well, because your family was your career and it was your future. And especially as a woman, to have a husband and then to have heirs, and to have that patriarchal family would go to your husband's father's family, like Betahab, the father's house, and be in that kind of family circle after you got married. And they would be responsible for taking care of you and looking out for you. And so her future is secured now. And he can't divorce her as long as he lives. So because of the choices that he's made, again, not rape, but just being, you know, shifty and shady or just intentionally saying, oh, let's just do it one time. And then we'll never have to talk again. This kind of no strings attached relationship possibly, that's not going to happen here. God is going to make sure that this woman is taken care of. And also like in Exodus 22, we see her, her father could say, because the patriarchs would look at the best interests of their children and if they were being good godly fathers and they would look at what would be in the best interest for their child's life, how they would be treated and also would they be okay? Would they be okay at their, at this other family's uh, house in this other family's community? Would they have economic opportunity? Would they have a, a security in that way? So he can say, look, this guy is a deadbeat guy. He's not going to take care of my daughter. He's not going to provide for her as he should. And maybe he's not going to uphold what we see in Genesis 2, the kind of union and the kind of marriage that God ordains. So I don't want her to marry him, but you still have to pay and ensure some security for her future. So again, countercultural to the other cultures that were very much so anti-women and so anti so many evil, evil things. It's also counter to our culture and purity culture. And it's, it's really important to see God's heart and God's compassion and God's love here. In the podcast that I just listened to with Sandy Richter and Preston Sprinkle, she talked a lot about Assyrian law. And so she was detailing how in the instance of rape in Assyrian law specifically, if a man had a daughter and she was raped by another man, the father could then go to that man who raped her and take her wife, take his wife and rape her himself or find someone else to rape this man's wife. Then that wife would come and live with the father. 
and she would be kind of like an indentured servant to him, kind of like a slave. Then the man who raped his daughter would take her into his household. This was all about honoring the men, not about the women, not about their security, not about their future. A miserable, miserable life for these women. God is not at all saying <laughs> that's okay, that's good. He's contrasting that and saying, no, no, everyone has autonomy here. There are roles in the society where we look out for each other and take care of each other. But this is not about defending a man's honor. This is about ensuring the equality and the future and hopefulness of all people. Very, very interesting and so important to make, to distinguish between those different instances. And really, really take some time and look into that more if you have questions. I'm not sure if I mentioned this or not already, but all the time throughout this series of marriage and prostitution and polygamy and uh, sexual relationships, we've looked, uh, I've mentioned quite a few times, David Lamb has some great books, Polygamists and Prostitutes. I don't know if I'm getting that right. It might be Prostitutes and Polygamists. If you search it, it will come up. And also God Behaving Badly. Such good books, such good resources for understanding these more. Um, there's a book called Is God a Moral Monster? I have not read it, but someone recommended it to me. If you're struggling with some of these Old Testament concepts and ideas, that would be so helpful to get some ideas from those people. Understand just from a different time in history, a different culture, a different society, the way that families are set up. It's so different from our world now, and we really have to take a step back and not just like read it, open our Bibles, read one verse and close it and be mad at God, but really take time to understand him. And also compare it to these other ancient laws and just get a more full picture. Okay, so we're going to jump to the Psalms and the Proverbs. So these do not specifically address sexual abuse or rape, but again, we see this model that God has set up for upholding the innocence of people who have been wronged and make sure that you are condemning the proper people. You are holding them responsible for the actions that they've taken. You are not being partial to the wicked. You are not allowing people to take advantage of the oppressed or the vulnerable. And so that's really important when we look at this issue of sexual abuse as well, because we're seeing God's heart over and over and over again. And even if it's not directly talking about sexual assault or abuse in some of these verses, we see the heart of God. And so we're going to start out with Proverbs 17, 15. It says, acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. I think there are a lot of situations today where we can see many times, unfortunately, like these other evil ancient societies that made the importance and value and honor of men more important than that of women in our modern society. Sometimes we do that as well when it comes to sexual abuse and sexual assault, especially within the church. And we silence survivors and we say, well, we should all forgive and we should all forget. And we misuse and spiritually abuse some of these godly concepts. But again, we're manipulating them and twisting them to make it seem okay to acquit the guilty. And this is specifically saying the Lord detests that. And condemning the innocent, that's wrong. Neither of these things are okay. They're not godly and they're not good. Proverbs 18.5 said, it is not good to be partial to the wicked and so deprive the innocent of justice. Same idea. Proverbs 21, 7 through 8 says, the violence of the wicked will drag them away for they refuse to do what is right. The way of the guilty is devious, but the conduct of the innocent is upright. 
Proverbs 24, 23 through 25 says, these are also the sayings of the wise to show partiality and judging is not good. Whoever says to the guilty, you are innocent, will be cursed by peoples and denounced by nations, but it will go well with those who convict the guilty and rich blessing will come to them. So I just wanna repeat this because I think it's so important. Forgiveness is so good and so godly. It is freeing. It is freeing for the person who has been hurt and wrong, but it is not an excuse to overlook evil. It's not an excuse to let an act of sexual violence go without serious care for the survivor and consequences for the perpetrator. And that's not just punishing for the sake of punishing, but serious mental health and treatment. There's this great clinical psychologist, Dr. Anna Salter. She does a lot of work. She worked for, oh my gosh, I don't know, 20, 30, maybe even 40 years on studying specifically, I think she, she focuses on perpetrators of child sexual abuse and sexual assault, but looking at perpetrators and seeing kind of their tendencies and ways that we can not just detect them, but more effectively deflect them from getting a hold of children, getting into our religious groups and circles, and especially within Protestant congregations where they often flock to because they know we abuse those ideas of forgiveness and grace and mercy. And so she explains that it's really important that even if we firmly believe in those ideas, which I firmly do, that we don't manipulate them to allow these perpetrators uh, to be in those spaces, not just allow them, but encourage them to be in those spaces. Reconciliation, forgiveness and healing, redemption, those things are wonderful and beautiful gifts from God that are available to anyone. But none of those terms, none of those ideas, none of the things that the Bible teaches means that you, don't have consequences for your actions, or that a perpetrator doesn't face justice and a survivor has to just forgive, uh, and therefore by forgiving, forgetting. Of course, we want survivors to forgive so that they can experience the freedom in Christ and not carry that weight and burden on their shoulders. But that does not mean forgetting. It does not mean trusting. It does not mean allowing perpetrators to be around other people they could hurt, other children they can harm. And we can't put a perpetrator above the well-being, the health, and the safety of a person who has been wronged because they deserve value and respect. And we see that throughout that Old Testament law, throughout the Psalms and the Proverbs, and as we will look forward, even throughout the prophetic books, which are a thing that we don't often look to when we're thinking about these ideas. It's not loving or just for us to tell a perpetrator, well, you know what, don't worry about it, try not to do it again. And that seems crazy to say, and I'm sure people are saying, well, no church has ever said that. No, but a lot of times we're slapping people on the wrist and saying, well, it could have been worse. Or we applaud when a man comes forward and says, I made a sinful mistake, a sexual mistake. And then we detest a woman who has, in most cases, done nothing wrong or has been a victim of a person by the definition of what a victim is, has not asked for it, has not done anything to deserve it. A man has or sometimes a woman, both can be perpetrators of sexual abuse and assault, has taken advantage of another person and forced them into acts they did not consent to. It's not loving or just to let those people go without professional treatment and help for their sake as well. It's unloving to them, it's unloving to the person that they've hurt, and their potential victims, because reoffense rates are unfortunately very high. A study conducted by Dr. Abel Harlow found that pedophilia molesters averaged 12 child victims and 71 acts of molestation. Please think about that for a moment. That is harrowing. That is 
almost unbelievable. 71 acts. Think about what that means. There's so much, there's so much evil and so many detestable things there to think about. And that's just specifically looking at people who are attacking and also specifically seeking out and, and grooming children, not just looking at the general population and not looking at vulnerable adults and adults who are in abusive relationships or abusive marriages, date rape. This is just looking at pedophilia molesters. Also, an earlier study by Dr. Abel Harlow found that of 561 sexual offenders, there were over 291,000 incidents, totaling over 195,000 total victims. The same study by Dr. Abel Harlow found that only 3% of these sexual offenders have a chance of getting caught. And he does a lot of work within Protestant Christian congregations and churches and does a lot of studies within that. And that's important to note because 93% of sexual perpetrators identify as religious. Uh, there, there are a lot of statistics that I could share about churches and why people specifically seek out churches, but we need to ask ourselves when we're setting up not just church, but specifically children's ministries, youth ministries, women's ministries, why are people coming to this to hurt people? And what are we putting in place to make sure that doesn't happen? How can we make sure that in this situation, that a pedophile or a sexual abuser or an abusive husband has more of a chance of getting off and being free and being able to stay and being secure and being thought of well than a woman or a child who has been violated and deeply hurt and harmed. We need to ask ourselves, how can we flip that? Because in this situation, uh, when we look back in Deuteronomy 22, the woman that's raped, She's expected to report it, and her community is expected to believe her. That is not true for our churches today, and we need to think so hard and pray so hard and search God's word so deeply to understand how we can heal our churches to make sure that doesn't happen, and, and to make sure that we're not cultivating that, and we're not creating communities where abuse thrives and where abusers are seeking evangelical churches to find victims in. We need to make sure that we are not just caring for survivors of abuse, but we are also fighting it from the other direction and attacking the problem from the start. We're teaching consent, we're teaching healthy relationships, healthy sexual relationships within marriages. A lot of very important things that we need to be teaching to build a strong foundation to understand why and how we need to be responsible for our actions and look out for the best interests of others, just like the ancient Israelite society. So we're going to go to the prophets. Um, it's good to note that you might want to look into more. We don't have time today to get into all of this, but uh, the kingdoms of Israel and Judah and the split. And there's a lot of different things addressed here. Judah, Jerusalem, Israel, the people of Israel. But uh, we're going to do this in another podcast. So I don't want to get into it too much today. But don't get confused by um, these different specific groups that are being addressed here. Okay, so verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 1 gives us some context. It says, a vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So Isaiah is a prophet. He's a mouthpiece of God. God speaks through him, and God gives him warning, instruction, and sometimes comfort for these people. So the Grace and Truth Study Bible explains the book of Isaiah begins with painful words, but it later offers relief. God places the words of both judgment and comfort in the mouth of Amos's son, Isaiah. Like a spiritual doctor, Isaiah presents a diagnosis. The news is not good. The land of Israel is sick with sin, their own sin. 
God raises up Isaiah as a voice to the southern kingdom of Judah so that he might proclaim God's judgment. The people of Israel, ill with the sins of worshiping idols and participating in immorality, need to repent and turn from wickedness. So as we're going to look just at a few verses here, there's so much in this book. There's so many chapters as well. It goes on and on and on. Um, the people of Israel are acting in wicked ways toward vulnerable people, towards oppressed people, toward foreigners, towards people that they're expected to take care of and to help and provide a future and hope and economic stability for. They are not doing that. They're treating them unjustly. They're treating them cruelly. And they're not treating them as image bearers of God as they should be. And they kind of ignored the consequences of not obeying God. And now they are facing the consequences themselves. So chapter one of Isaiah verse three says, woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great abroad of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Now we're going to jump to chapter one, verse 16 through 17. It says, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. So again, we are seeing, and this is what we're going to repeat over and over and over in these verses, is God not only cares for the fatherless, for the widow, for the oppressed, for the vulnerable, which we know, of course, would include people who have been victims of sexual abuse, of rape, of sexual assault, of all people who are in these situations, and not just say, oh, we care for you, but actually make sure that you're standing up for them. You're standing up for what is just for them. You're making sure that you care for them. It's not just sending a sympathy card where there's action behind it. I think it's also important. I should have done this at the beginning, but let's just walk through really quickly the different terms that we're using. So sexual assault is kind of an umbrella term. Sexual assault is any unwanted or forced contact that occurs without the consent of the victim. So that kind of includes sexual harassment. That includes rape. That includes um, molestation. A lot of those are without the consent of the victim. So touching, harming, some kind of contact, physical violence. Sexual harassment goes into, it can be contact physical violence, but it can also be like unwanted sexual remarks. It can be um, maybe like quid pro quo, like I'm going to raise your grades or I'm going to give you a promotion if you do these things with me sexually. And uh, that's, that's a little bit different. But then rape is specifically forcing someone to have intercourse with you. And it's not just physical force. It can be some kind of emotional or mental manipulation. It can be under threat, um, actual threat, or someone threatening to hurt someone's family. It doesn't always mean someone is holding a knife or a gun to someone. There are a lot of ways to manipulate people in these cruel and evil ways. So I want to preface that before we keep going on. But... We can see in all of those situations, something was not present and that's consent. And that is the consent of the person who's being taken advantage of. And so all of these ideas and these principles that Isaiah is speaking to the people of Israel about from God himself, they would be included in these groups of oppressed people, of those who have been deprived of their rights. Let's go to chapter 58 and verses 9 through 10. So Isaiah is addressing people who are questioning God. So the people are asking, we're fasting. Why is God not listening? Why isn't he responding to our fasts? Isaiah explains, yeah, you're fasting, but you are also acting unjustly to other people while you fast. So their hearts and their actions do not align. That's very important. Verse 9 through 10 
they say, then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise from the darkness and your night will become like noonday. I think with a lot of news that's happening and a lot of things that are coming out, I don't like to talk about <laughs> news and I don't like to talk about current events specifically on my own podcast, because we know, especially in this age of social media, there are like a thousand, bajillion, million news stories every day. And it's just not possible to talk about them all. And also I'm not an expert and I'm not a newscaster and I uh, am not a professional in anything. So I don't feel like it's my place to just like freely give my unsolicited opinion on all these topics. However, this week, uh, today's the 26th, I'm recording this day of, it's a little late, but this week there was an important list that was released by the Southern Baptist Convention about some abusers and perpetrators and some um, silencing of victims that has happened, some excusing of sexual, sexual immorality, uh, of rape, of sexual abuse that has gone on, that has been covered up. And so I think we really need to pay attention to verses like this, where in these contexts, even the lawyer who is defending a lot of these pastors within the SBC and the SBC as a whole was saying, you know what, this is all just a ploy of the enemy. These are just distractions. These people who are accusing these good men of these, these bad actions, this, that's not what God is saying. It's not what God is saying to the people of Israel. It's not what God is saying anywhere in scripture. God is saying, if, if there is sin, we need to address it. Your ministry, your lives serving me, they will not be successful. As we see here, your fasting is not going to be successful if you're saying, yes, Lord, we want to do these things and we're doing these good things for you. See our good acts. But yet you're treating people so unjustly and you're treating the oppressed with this yoke of oppression yourselves. And you need to be caring for these people, not just caring for them, uplifting them as I have done for you. And it says your light will rise in the darkness. That's what we need in these situations. Light to rise out of the darkness, not covering things up with more darkness, not forcing people, not silencing victims into, into further darkness, but bringing the light to them and understanding that we cannot thrive in our ministries for the Lord, the God of truth and justice and love and light when we are harboring sin and secrets of abuse and further harming victims have already been exploited through our actions as a church and calling it good and calling it godly. That is not what's happening here. And we're going to see that again in Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a prophet. The book of Jeremiah is God speaking through Jeremiah to the people of the land of Israel. Again, we have this like Judah-Israel thing. We're going to talk about that another time. God speaks through Jeremiah to tell the people of Israel they've disobeyed his law. They've mistreated the vulnerable and the oppressed. Sounds familiar. And they've turned from God. So in Jeremiah 38, the time has passed for the people of Israel to make new choices for a new outcome. So Babylon's coming and they're going to take Israel captive. But God still instructs them to change their hearts, to change their ways, to make better decisions. So unfortunately, it's not anymore like change and they're not going to come get you. It's like, listen, this is the consequences of your actions have already caught up. But I don't want your hearts to be far from me. I want you to turn back to me. And this is really interesting. We're going to look at Jeremiah 38, verse 2. God is telling the people through Jeremiah, through his mouthpiece, that they must surrender peacefully as the Babylonians come to capture them and go with them. 
So verse two says, this is what the Lord says. Whoever stays in the city will die by the sword, famine or plague, but whoever goes over to the Babylonians will live. They will escape with their lives and they will live. This is what the Lord says. This is in verse three. The city will certainly be given into the hands of the army of the king of Babylon who will capture it. And I mean, that would have been really hard to understand when we read this chapter, Jeremiah 38. People did not receive this well. Jeremiah got thrown into jail for it. There was a whole thing with the king. People didn't receive this well because when you say, this isn't going to happen anymore, like we have to surrender. We have to follow the instructions of God to give this thing up. It seems so good and it seems like we should defend it and we should fight till the bitter end, but we have mistreated the people that God specifically instructs us to care for. And he's saying we have to give this up and we have to face the consequences of our actions. And if anybody listened to the rise and fall of Marcel's church, I know people have controversial opinions about it. It was really helpful and healing for me actually to see how in my life I've been a part of an institution that harmed me, but realizing that I was a part of that institution that harmed other people. The very same institution that harmed me, uh, this organization, I was a part of it and I hurt other people through it. Anyways, as you look at the story of the rise and fall of Marcel Church and that podcast by Mark Cosper, there comes a time at the end when it's like this church, Mars Hill, they really needed to kind of close up shop and people were still fighting for something. And it was like their heart and intention may have been good, but this institution, this organization, this church had done so much damage to other people. It really, to do the godly and correct thing, a lot of people's opinions was we need to close this down. And maybe we can start new. Maybe, of course, God has more plans and hopefulness for us, but we need to get healing and we need to get help and we need to help the people that we've hurt. And I see some similarities here where people don't want to surrender because it's something that they worked hard on. And it's something that they want to defend for God, for good, godly purposes. But God is saying, no, there's damage that has been done and it needs to be addressed before we can move on from this. And I think that that's hard for people to do in churches where sexual abuse has occurred, with pastors, with leaders, with, um, you know, within marriages. There's so many contexts in which sexual abuse and rape occur. And we want to just say, no, we can't let this take us down. We can't stop. We don't want to stop because what is this going to do to the gospel? The gospel is being harmed when we say we are the representatives of Christ, when we are the representatives of the Bible and God and these, this God of mercy and love and justice. And then we are harming people and we're silencing victims and we're not standing for truth. We're not standing for justice. We're not standing for the oppressed. We're standing for ourselves and our own pride. And we don't want this thing that we work so hard for as good as it may be to be taken away from us, but healing has to happen. And the consequences of our actions must be addressed before healing can come and restoration can come and redemption. And again, redemption doesn't always look like that means, um, you know, an abusive marriage gets healed and people stay in that relationship. Most of the time, that's not healthy for either person or that, you know, an abuser and their victim are friends now. That's completely unrealistic and unhealthy and, and even unbiblical for us to expect. Redemption doesn't look like restoration in all cases or restoration doesn't always look the same. We, I think we want it to be like Job where we get everything back that we had before. And that's just not the case for everyone. But the good things that God has for us in the future, they can't come if we don't address the pain and the sickness that we have. We can't get healing if we don't address the sickness. Okay, so we're going to keep going on here. Jeremiah 5, 26 through 29. 
This says, among my people are the wicked who lie in wait like men who snare birds and like those who set traps to catch people. Like cages full of birds, their houses are full of deceit. They have become rich and powerful and have grown fat and sleek. Their evil deeds have no limit. They do not seek justice. They do not promote the case of the fatherless. They do not defend the just cause of the poor. Should I not punish them for this, declares the Lord? Should I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? It's very, very important for us to understand. And these ideas, it seems they're repetitive. I'm just <laughs> picking out like the like just the top, the drop in the bucket of these, uh, these massive prophetic books and all that's in them. But I think it's really good for us to see the character of God represented throughout scripture. We're going to look quickly at Ezekiel before we jump to the New Testament. So the NASB, Charles F. Stanley Life Principles Bible Notes says, Ezekiel, a priest and prophet, ministered during the darkest days of Judah's history, the 70 years of Babylonian captivity. Carried to Babylon before the final assault on Jerusalem, Ezekiel uses prophecies, parables, and object lessons to report God's message to his exiled people. Though they are like dry bones baking in the sun, God will reassemble them and breathe life into the nation once again. That's Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14. He promises that present judgment will be followed by future glory so that they would know that I am the Lord. And that references verse six, chapter six, verse seven. So we're going to look at chapter 16. So this is a really interesting passage. God is comparing uh, Judah and the people of Israel in Judah. He's comparing them to these evil cities and not just comparing them, but saying, you're so close, you're like family. So it's like your mother and your sisters and your daughters. And so we're comparing them to societies like Samaria and Sodom. And we know Sodom from the city of the sister cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, and the evil that was done there. And I think a lot of times we look at that and we focus on like, well, they're evil because they're homosexual. Actually, a lot of the evil that was done is because they were mistreating foreigners and they were mistreating oppressed, which is addressed here. So I'm going to start at verse 40, 46 in chapter 16. Your older sister was Samaria, talking to the people of uh, Israel and Judah, who lived with her daughters to the north of you. And your younger sister was Sodom, who lived with her daughters to the south of you. Didn't you walk in their ways and do their detestable practices? It was only a short time before all your ways were more corrupt than theirs. This is like, ouch. As I live, the declaration of the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not behaved as you and your daughters have. So not just you're closely related, not just you're just as bad as them, it's you're worse. Like they can't even imagine what you're doing. Your acts are so detestable to the people that you are supposed to be protecting, to the people that the law specifically instructs you to protect. The NIV's Grace and Truth Study Bible says on chapter 18, so uh, this is two chapters later, Another word from the Lord comes to Ezekiel. In this chapter, a prophet will debunk a popular misconception in the Israelite theology of guilt and personal responsibility. So in chapter 18, we see Ezekiel specifically addressing this idea that the generation uh, that he's talking to, they believe that they were bearing the punishment for the sins of their fathers, for the generations that had come before them. And that's not a proper representation of God's justice, as this NIV Grace and Truth Study Bible says. Um, it says he is not unfair to the current generation. Everyone must bear the responsibility for their own guilt. God will bless righteousness in each generation, and he will punish wickedness in each generation. God forgives wickedness when sinners repent and turn to him. So specifically, verse 10 through 13 says, but suppose that a man has a violent son who sheds blood and does any of these things, though a father has done none of them. Indeed, when the son eats 
at the mountain shrines and defiles his neighbor's wife, and when he oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery and does not return collateral, and when he looks to the idols, commits detestable acts and lends at interest for profit, will he live? He will not live. Since he has committed these detestable acts, he certainly will die. His death will be his own fault. So we see these ideas, not just ideas of hurting the oppressed, specifically taking advantage of your neighbor's wife, uh, oppressing the poor, purposely hurting the needy, lending things so that you can get something in, in return. Over and over and over, we're seeing the same idea shared again and again. And the last thing we're going to look at here is chapter 22, verses 27 through 29. It says, her officials within her are like wolves tearing their prey, shedding blood, and destroying lives in order to make profit dishonestly. Her prophets plaster for them with whitewash by seeing false visions and lying divination, saying, this is what the Lord says when the Lord has not spoken. The people of the land have practiced exhortation and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and the needy and unlawfully exploited the resident alien. Woo! That's a lot. It's a lot there. And we're just seeing again, people are valuable. People are inherently valuable. We need to treat them as we would treat God, as we would treat, not as we would treat God, as we would treat another person made in the image of God, whether or not we agree with them, whether or not they're from our country, whether or not they're from our tribe, whether or not they're from our family, whether they have been harmed or not. Specifically, if they haven't been harmed, we need to lift them up. We need to seek out those people. We need to help them. We need to help them heal and help restore what has been taken from them in any way that we can. We treat all people with the same dignity and with the same respect. And we have even more care for those who have been dishonored and who have been exhorted unlawfully and who have been harmed in these ways. Okay, now we're going to go to the New Testament. We're almost done here, but this is really important as well to look at the words of Jesus and how they compare to some of these ideas. And a lot of these verses I've heard get so manipulated and so turned into things that they're not. And I think it's really important to just start fresh, look at what Jesus is saying, compare it to the rest of the New Testament. And again, we want to just not take one verse, one chapter, one book, but take that book in the whole New Testament, in the whole Old Testament, and look at all of these ideas from Genesis to Revelation in the fullest understanding of scripture that we can and also looking at history and culture to give us a really good full perspective. Okay, let's start in Matthew 5, verse 27 through 31. There's quite a few places in the Gospels and kind of parallel passages where Jesus addresses adultery, but in the specific passage about adultery, Jesus talks about uh, divorce as well, and also sexual immorality and the kind of, not necessarily exceptions, but the reasons that it's acceptable to get a divorce. So, we're going to start verse 27. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. The word uh, that we can look at in the original translation is Gehenna. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Gehenna. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. Talking about the law of Moses. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual morality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, a lot is here. <laughs> First, this is significant. Let's look at the hand thing. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand, specifically, we're seeing right hand. 
Okay, so in this ancient context, you didn't have access to hand sanitizer and your little spray bottle and uh, a sink and running water because that, those things did not exist. And you didn't have an opportunity to wash your hands every time something dirty happened. Like if you had to clean something or use the restroom or different things that you had to do on a daily basis, things that we do all the time. So you had a clean hand and an unclean hand. Typically your right hand was your clean hand and your left hand was your unclean hand. This is still prominent in some Middle Eastern cultures today. Uh, I believe in Islam, this is a, a similar practice they have. So this, this is saying your good hand, your clean hand, if it's causing you to sin, cut it off. And we can see Jesus doesn't necessarily mean actually cut off your body parts, but he's saying if something in your life is leading you to sin, you're still responsible. It's not someone else's fault. It's not someone else's problem. You're responsible for your own actions. And so if something is causing you to sin, get rid of it, cut it out of your life. It is not worth it for you, for you to have this like searing evil in your soul. Just get rid of what's causing you to sin. In our modern context, a lot of times people reference it to like pornography, which I think is a good link because they're saying like, hey, if you're getting on your laptop and getting on the internet or having access on your phone to pornography or pornographic materials, if that's causing you to sin, just having that there, get rid of your phone, get rid of the internet, uh, get a flip phone. You know, there's lots of things that we can do because we are responsible for our own actions. I want to look at Matthew 15, verse 16 through 20. It says, uh, do you still lack understanding? He asks, he's talking to Peter after he gave a parable. Don't you realize that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart, and this defiles the person. From the heart, not from another person, not from, you know, you're looking at a woman and it's her fault because of what she's wearing or doing. From your heart, from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, theft, false testimonies, and slander. These are the things that defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile a person. So th there's a lot in this parable in Matthew 15 that we don't have time to look at right now. But your heart is what drives your actions, where your heart is, where your desires are, what motivates you. And so, of course, we want to align our motivations and our heart to God, to let the Holy Spirit of God lead and guide us, and to submit to the Holy Spirit of God, not to our fleshly desires. Because if we do, then we can see that what will come out of the fruit of our own fleshly desires is not love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, like that would be the fruit of the Holy Spirit of God, it's evil thoughts, immorality, lust, greed, murder, hate, so many evil things because our souls, uh, our inherent nature is not good. We need the nature of God to guide us and lead us and to submit to it and not to quench the Holy Spirit of God. So people commonly come to this passage. This is so interesting because we kind of take like the last part of this and then we're like, oh, okay, the only way you can get a divorce is if someone's cheating. That's not what this is really saying that's not the whole entirety of this passage. And I understand the hesitancy here because we want to accurately represent scripture and explain what it's saying in the most accurate way. And that is respectable and we all need to do that. But we can't, what we're doing actually is taking a little piece of this and manipulating it and saying, well, if you're being abused, you can only exit this relationship if your partner is cheating on you. So if he's you know, physically cheated with another woman, well, then maybe we could get divorced. But if he's beating you or sexually abusing you or, you know, just there's some evil acts of severe mental and emotional abuse, well, that's fine because he technically hasn't cheated. That's not what this is saying. It says, 
except in a case of sexual immorality. And so this verse explains that it's not just cheating, it's not just adultery, but sexual immorality. And that's kind of this umbrella term that we see used many times in scripture. And again, it's we're looking back at that passage that says like, what's in your heart? Because out of your heart come these things, out of your heart come lust, you are responsible for your own actions. Also, I talked with Christine about this passage briefly when we were looking at polygamy. So this passage is specifically addressing a problem where men could divorce their wives. They just needed a written notice. He's saying, no, no, you can't just dump your wife because you don't wanna be married to her anymore. <laughs> like you don't find her attractive or lovely or wonderful. And so you wanna dump her and find a newer, younger model, or you just don't want the baggage anymore. He's saying, no, no, if you divorce your wife and then you're going to sleep with another woman, this is sexual immorality. Uh, this is not okay. We're not, this is not the way that we've designed marriage. Jesus speaking here. This is not the way that God has designed marriage. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That's, again, really specific. And I think we need to be careful when we use that and we try to weaponize it and take that one little piece and take it out of context. We need to accurately represent the whole passage in the whole context of scripture. Okay, Hebrews 13.4 says, Marriage is to be honored by all and the marriage bed kept undefiled because God will just judge the sexually immoral and the adulterers. Ephesians 5 verse 1 through 5 says, therefore be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. But sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you as is proper for saints. Obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. For no one recognized this, every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance of the kingdom of Christ and of God. These are really important things to look at. My husband just rang the doorbell, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be right back. Okay, crisis averted. So we see, again, these umbrella terms that are used here in scripture, sexual immorality, the sexually immoral. So that begs the question, what is sexual immorality and sexual morality? And so first, let's look at what is sexual morality? So we see the principles that are laid out in that passage in Matthew, uh, and also in the Gospels, there are parallel passages to a lot of these verses from what Jesus is saying about uh, divorce and about lusting after a woman. So we can see this principle. It's treating others with the dignity that God has given them as image bearers of God. We're not treating them as objects. We're not lusting after them as sexual objects. So that entails not using other people for our own sexual gratification, not forcing others to be used for our own sexual gratification, treating them with the dignity and respect that they deserve. We can find other people beautiful and attractive without lusting after them. We can appreciate the beauty of someone without committing a sin to them or to ourselves. Also, we see this respect for the way that God has created marriage and a marriage relationship and marriage being the only place where God instructs sexual relationships to happen. So joining your body with another person that's not your spouse has serious consequences for both of you. And then, like we saw in the law of Deuteronomy, it has serious implications, not just for you and the person that you're cheating with or your spouses, but also for your families and for your community and the people around you. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 19 says, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And those are in quotes. Um, Paul is quoting, or kind of like, uh, 
maybe saying things he's heard from his congregation in Corinth or some things that he's heard, like some common ideas, food is good for the stomach and the stomach for food. And then he says, and God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power, talking about Jesus. Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? Should I take part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Didn't you know that anyone joined your prostitute is one body with her? Again, this, this, this idea that when you have sexual intercourse with someone or a sexual relationship, you become one person, you become one. For scripture says the two will become one flesh, but anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price, so glorify God with your body. We see that sex is being respected by both partners. It's given as a gift in love to one another in marriage. And it's this respect that we see all the way from the beginning of time in Genesis 2 with the first man and first woman. Also, treating people who are not your spouse with respect. We treat them as a brother or sister. That's the way we view them. Again, we can say, my sister or my brother is a beautiful or handsome person. We don't commit sexual sin when we say that. We don't appreciate the beauty of them and then commit sin. We can, we can still see them as a brother and sister in Christ. And we don't have to sin uh, and commit lust by appreciating the attractiveness or beauty of someone or liking their personality. We, we don't have to twist it in our with our fleshly desires or uh, with the sexual immorality, we can treat people with the respect as we would our family members. First Timothy 5, 1 through 2 says, don't rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters with all purity. And then also using sex as a way to celebrate marriage for pleasure, for procreation. We talked a lot about that in the marriage episode with Savannah. Treating your spouse with love and respect. Ephesians 5, 15 through 33 says, pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is and don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. And then we get into the submission passage, the respect passage, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because a husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body, talking about Christ. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husband loves your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of the water by the sword. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, this is uh, like repeating Genesis 2, and be joined to his wife, the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. Okay, there's a lot there, and I think there's like probably five podcast episodes in uh, Ephesians chapter five, and that's a lot of reading right there, but 
really important principles, even if we don't get into submission and complementarianism and all of that. Because you can be the most fundamentalist, hardcore complementarian, having this like strong leader in a relationship role, and that doesn't make the other person less valuable or subordinate or less important. And as we see in Matthew 5 in this upside down kingdom idea, we see the absolute opposite of that, that the last shall be first. And if you're a leader, then you're going to put yourself in the place of being lesser than others and uplifting the lesser. So that's not a biblical principle. And so I think you can be a hardcore complementarian and still see this equality equals united as a team. But that's there's a lot to that conversation as well. We see loving your wife as your own body, being prepared to sacrifice yourself for your spouse, giving literally everything your life, respecting your husband, what that means in a loving relationship, especially in the context of ancient marriages, uh, maybe a little bit different in this context, but pretty much the same as the beginning when we were looking at Deuteronomy. And in that specific time period, like this idea that marriage wasn't really about love, it was, it could be, but it was primarily about like basically your career and providing financial stability and a community or uniting two families, creating kind of a treaty. It was looking out for the greater good of the community, not just two people's interests. So even within that, to have love and respect was very groundbreaking. And in this Greco-Roman culture also, a lot of those ideas were not about loving or respecting or viewing your wife especially being a woman as your equal. And Roman household codes and all that are very important to look at in this conversation. Hopefully one day we'll have somebody come and talk about complementarianism and maybe another day have an egalitarian come and, and talk about those topics. But as we're wrapping up, uh, as we're looking at morality, sexual morality, submitting to the Holy Spirit of God and not our own desires, you can look at Romans 13, eight through 10, Colossians 3, one through 10, this is talking about being raised with Christ, seeking things above. Uh, verse 5 says, therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. And then it says, similar to the prophetic books that we looked at, because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. Um, and then it talks more about just ungodly behavior and putting on your new self because you've been renewed in Christ. So that's sexual morality. Jesus really references sexual immorality. So we want to define this umbrella term. What does it mean to be sexually immoral? Jesus is saying you can divorce a person because of sexual immorality. Again, we've interpreted that as, oh, well, cheating. But this is a whole umbrella term. And it's pretty much the opposite of what we just covered. But starting out from the top, using other people as sexual objects. So that's what lust is, using people for our own sexual gratification, not this idea of, uh, the union of marriage of two people giving themselves to one another in love and respect, but using someone as an object. So that would also include rape, sexual promiscuity, sexual abuse. We covered those terms. Using sex as a weapon. So not necessarily in the sense of rape and sexual abuse, where you're asserting your power over someone to hurt them and harm them in that very vulnerable way, but more in the sense of like, I'm withholding sex within this marriage because I want to win an argument or I want to hurt you. Or um, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5 gives some specific instances like if you're fasting, then it's okay, but it's because you both agreed on it and you're not using it to weaponize it against your spouse. So verse 1 says, now in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's in quotation marks because uh, Paul is addressing this. 
But because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. So they had written to him and saying, it's not good for anyone to have sex. Paul's saying, no, no, it is. But um, here's some kind of groundwork for it. A woman should fulfill his, a husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise a wife to her husband. Again, different than Greco-Roman household codes where it just said, a wife is pretty much her husband's sex slave. That's not what he's saying here. This is a, a respectful, equal union, consensual relationship. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does in the same way. A husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another, except when you agree for a time, so like fasting, to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So summarize that again, withholding sex to hurt your spouse, to win a fight, using sex to hurt your spouse in some way, to not honor their wishes, not honoring their consent in those ways. And then uh, we're wrapping it up here, but covering more of this sexual immorality, harming your spouse, that's sexually immoral, not loving them as your very own body, not respecting them, not caring for them as Christ as the church, not being willing to literally give up your life for them, like Ephesians 5. Galatians 5, it seems like all these chapters about sex are in chapter five of these books. Galatians 5, 13 through 14 says, you were called to be free brothers and sisters. Do not only use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is filled through this one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. So that's not talking about marriage or sexual relationships, but if we're supposed to treat our neighbor as ourselves, and like Ephesians 5 tells us to treat our spouse as Christ as a church, sacrificing everything for them, and how much more would Galatians 5 apply to a marriage? So, of course, harming your spouse would include physical abuse, sexual abuse, mental and emotional abuse, spiritual abuse, using these passages to say, you have to do what I want, you have to have sex with me, you have to, you know, taking away consent and respect. And the groundwork that the rest of scripture has laid out for marriage and what this sexual relationship specifically is supposed to look like having sex outside of your marriage relationship, sleeping with a family member, incest, that's addressed many, many times in the Law of Moses. First Corinthians 5, um, it says, it's actually reported that there is a sexual immorality, excuse me, that there is sexual immorality among you, the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. So even, not just blood-related relatives, but having these family relationships, Someone is sleeping with his stepmom. That's not okay. And as we look, actually, 1 Corinthians 5 addresses quite a few things, and we talked about some of them, but it explains to you at the end, and this is important. I wrote to you in a letter, Paul's talking, not to associate with these sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother and sister and is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. So important because he's saying, if you wanted to avoid all the people who were sexually immoral, who committed all these sins and who were fornicating and swindling people and who were worshiping idols, you would literally have to leave the world because they're everywhere. So those are the people that I'm specifically telling you to, to reach out to and to help. And hopefully the goal is to like accept them into this group and introduce them to Jesus. And as a result of that, their behavior will change. But actually I'm saying, don't associate with the people who identify as believers and who are committing these horrendous acts 
and saying that they represent Jesus. And I think, like we sort of mentioned this, the SBC situation happening and a lot of churches that are struggling with this right now with sexual abuse and hiding it. And, and I think that this very easily applies to those situations that uh, we're so quick to condemn the world for their decisions and what they've done. And to say, well, people are leaving because of the liberals. That's why they're leaving church and because of the atheists and their great arguments. That's not why people are leaving. And I've said this many times, people are leaving. Like this verse says, they're, they're leaving because the people who claim to be the representatives of Jesus and then are sexually immoral, greedy, idolaters, verbally abusive. They're drunkards or swindlers in our context, like they're hiding abuse. They're not acting as representatives of Jesus, but they're saying that they are. And that is a problem. And, and that's a huge reason why people are leaving churches, not because sexual abuse is being exposed, because it's being hidden, because it's being silenced, and because it's not being corrected. And, and victims and survivors are not being uh, helped and restored, and perpetrators are not being held accountable for their actions, and all those principles that we looked at throughout all of scripture. So there's a lot here. There's a lot that we just like quickly touched on and didn't even get into. And hopefully one day we'll have like a million episodes to get through a lot of those things in the prophets and even more about the law in Deuteronomy and numbers and Exodus and so many things. But hopefully that gives some groundwork. And again, just remembering like God is not awesome and fun in the New Testament and like this horrible monster in the Old Testament. And it's hard because sometimes you just think, why is he the worst and why? Do these verses say what they do? Couldn't they have been more clear? But when we look through the proper cultural and historical context, we look through the proper biblical context, we see God's heart and his faithfulness and goodness and the value that he has and sanctity he has for human life and for the specifically vulnerable and oppressed and women and people who were dishonored commonly in that society. So it's important with these topics, especially to ask questions about them and keep asking questions and go to scripture. And I mentioned a lot of people that you can turn to and look at who can give you really good resources who have studied this for many, many, many years. And I recommend those people highly. But again, the point of all of this is to look at your Bible and just ask questions. And if you take nothing from this, just read Deuteronomy and read some different um, study Bibles and some different commentaries about these passages to get some more ideas. Sandra Richter, definitely recommend. I'll link that podcast and I'll link the, the books that I talked about earlier as well. There we go.